Okay. So Paul has been doing a little rambling for a while on boasting or not boasting. And he says it's foolishness to boast, but he does it anyway because he's trying to compare himself with the false apostles who are at Corinth. And now he jumps into the real comparison, um, which helps us know that the ones who are attacking him and his apostleship and leadership in Corinth were Jews. Because, he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? This is, that was verse 22. I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths often. Of the Jews, five times received I forty stripes, save one. Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hungers and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, Besides those things that are without, that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches, who is weak and I am not weak, who is offended and I burn not. If I must needs glory, that means boast, I will glory of the things which concern my affirmities, infirmities, that God, excuse me, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knows that I lie not. So go back to verse 22. He's been making comparisons. He says he's had to boast in order to do it. And so now we know that from last week. He steps in and he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. When he asks, are they Hebrews? There is our proof that these are Jews that are, have infiltrated the Greek town of Corinth and are trying to Judaize or bring in the law upon the believers in Christ by faith. We are, we are doing a crossover, perfect crossover examination of the book of Galatians in Milk in the Morning. And he's facing the very same thing there. And so this is like meshing perfectly with that. Uh, so they were uh, Hebrews. They were probably of Greek extraction, meaning they were Hellenized Hebrews, meaning they were uh, learned the Greek culture, and were of that area. Nevertheless, they were Jews. But it can be presumed that they were certainly of the house of Israel. Um, I say this because throughout the apostolic record, the Jewish converts to Christianity are shown over and over again, in many cases, to believe they have superiority over the Gentile converts. There is that natural idea that I am a Jew. I've become a Christian uh, because Jesus was a Jew too. We are superior to the Gentiles who come into the faith, which was absolutely untrue. It's still untrue. Uh, there's no difference between Jew or Gentile, male or female, um, bond or free in Christ Jesus. We're all the same because of Christ Jesus. 
So this brings us to a view of what was probably going on there. Paul, a Jew of the Jews, has established this church at Corinth, which uh, many Gentiles had converted to, and some Jews. But the Jewish converts were coming in there, and they were undermining the stuff that he had established. So he says, are they Hebrews? So am I. We're going to make a comparison between them and me. They've been doing it. I will boast in doing it too. They're Hebrews. I am too. They're Israelites. So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are these redundancies? Is a Hebrew an Israelite? Is an Israelite a seed of Abraham? Yes and no. And so simply put, when it says, when he says, are they Hebrews, he seems, this could be wrong, but from the commentators I looked at, he seems to be saying, do they speak the sacred language of, do they speak Hebrew? Do they read the, from the congregation, uh, to the congregation from the Hebrew scriptures? This language is my language too. This culture is my culture. culture. When they say, are they Israelites, he's saying, are they from Jacob and not from Esau? And we know that uh, we know that Jacob is the father who changed his name to Israel, and we have the children of Israel. Well, he had a brother named Esau, and from Esau there was a different tribe going on there. So it's possible he was saying, "Are they from Jacob?" Because uh, that's what an Israelite was. Jacob's name changed to Israel. So it says, "I am also one. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin." In fact, we learn in another place. And then he says, are they the seed of Abraham? Of course, Abraham had two uh, sons, and one was the son of promise, and one was not. And so uh, Isaac, are they from Abraham? Are they from Isaac? And he says, so am I. So, uh, you know, uh, I am not a proselyte to this faith. I came into it, too, as a Jew converted to Christ. But I, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews, both by my father and my mother. I can trace my genealogy through the tribe of Benjamin up to the father of the faith. I have many high claims in terms of distinction. If you guys, my critics, want to make comparisons here, I can stand nose to nose with you. Plus, uh, Paul had the exposure of also being Hellenized as he was raised in Tarsus and he uh, knew the Greek ways and Greek language. So then he adds, are they ministers of Christ? And then he puts, we have this parenthetical reference, I speak as a fool, he adds. Again, talking about this deal, about being a fool and boasting. I am more. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I think what he seems to be saying there when he says, are they ministers of Christ, is I'm totally kidding here. I'm, I'm, being, bo- I'm being, not boastful, I'm being facetious here. Are they ministers of Christ? Last week, we learned that he called them false, false uh, apostles and that they were led by Satan. So when he says, are they ministers of Christ? If we didn't have that parenthetical reference, he would say, I am more, right? But instead, he says, are they ministers of Christ? I'm, I'm joking around here because I just, in a few passages earlier, said that they are uh, apostles of darkness, right? So he says, I am more. And then he brings... Um, begins to articulate the ways that he is more of a minister of Christ in verse the, by saying, in labors more abundant, uh, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, etc., etc. So um, we don't really know what he means if with, that, with that reference there. We're not sure, but that's how I would read it. I find it difficult to believe that last week after he says that they are false prophets and uh, that 
therefore they are in the employ of Satan who can transform himself into an angel of light, that now he is also calling them uh, preachers and ministers. He could be, but that's just something to, to touch on. Uh, so he says, so am I. Are they ministers? Of the, uh, are they ministers? So maybe they're ministers, yes, but I am more. They're ministers perhaps of a dark gospel of Satan. I am more uh, of light. And he goes into detail to show how what he had endured in terms of affliction to share his ministry in Christ with the world around them. And uh, I agree with Paul that it's foolishness to go head to head with people and say, this is what I've done for Jesus, and this is what you've done. I'm, I'm superior. I think it is foolishness, and, uh, but I guess there's a need for him to defend himself as an apostle, and so he sticks, gets into it. And he begins with this laundry list in which we're familiar because we've studied in the scripture before, but he begins in, in labors more abundant. Generally speaking, Paul is boastfully saying that he has engaged in more labors than longer, perhaps more quantitatively and qualitatively than his accusers. He, that's what he says. He has said this before, too. He said it when he was talking about uh, the other apostles. He says, I've labored more than them all. You know, so Paul is interesting. He's not afraid to hold, he's not afraid to lay out things sometimes in the cause of what he thinks is important. In stripes, he says, uh, that word is scourged. And uh, so again, in the cause of Christ, he has been scourged. It was a form of public punishment that they would use in that day. And he was subjected to it a number of times. Above measure, he says. So exceedingly, he was scourged. In prisons more frequent. In Acts chapter 16, 23, Luke mentions only one imprisonment of Paul. He says in prisons more frequent. So we know that uh, this is probably referring to at Philippi with Silas. That is the reference that Acts gives us. But Luke's record is not exhaustive. And just because there's an omission in a gospel or in one of the books doesn't mean that it's a contradiction. Luke doesn't mention all of them. Doesn't mean all of them didn't occur. Paul here says in prisons... More, above measure, yes. And then he says, in deaths often. Excuse my voice. I have a, and stay away from me. I have, Tuesday night, something came down upon me. It was a vicious demon. Took over my body. So, in deaths often. It's an interesting line because it probably means he was exposed to death. Uh, but, or he suffered pains equal to death. But perhaps he is talking about actually dying here. And I say that because when we studied uh, Acts, we learned that Paul was stoned uh, at one point and was taken out. His body was dragged outside the city and he was left and everyone thought he was dead. Okay, And I also say that because in the next chapter, chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, Paul says, I knew a man... Whether in the uh, flesh or in the spirit, I don't know, who was caught up into the third heaven. Most Christians translate that as to him speaking of himself. I don't, I, Paul, I think, would be more inclined to say, I was died and I went to the third heaven. Pretty straightforward. But most Christians say Paul was uh, probably speaking of himself when he was stoned. He died. He went to the third heaven. And so... Uh, but the thing about that is, is um, there's some reason to believe that he's talking about meeting John the Revelator, who was caught up 
and into heaven and saw many visions. And it's possible that Paul is referring to him there and not himself. In any case, Paul in the least faced death many times. And uh, perhaps he experienced uh, what we would call a death, uh, if you want to be a biblical literalist and take it that way. I don't know. At verse 24, he steps back and he begins to detail the stripes. So he says in stripes, and now he's talking about the stripes, of the Jews five times received I 40 stripes save one. So in all probability, this took place in the synagogues. We know that when Paul was going around and about to uh, the different cities in Asia Minor, that he would always go to the synagogue first. Why? Because the gospel was to go to the Jews first. So he, being a Jew, even though he was called to the Gentiles, always went to the synagogues first. And in the synagogue, uh, they didn't have the power of capital punishment. At least they weren't supposed to have that power. But they had to inflict uh, other punishments upon people. And through the instances that aren't specified by Luke in the book of Acts, uh, Paul has every degree of probability that he preached in their synagogues and it it resulted in him being scourged. Um, So they regarded him as an apostate and as a ringleader of the Nazarite sect. And so he was submitted to severe punishment. Every one of us, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've heard uh, why it's 40 stripes minus one. And it's because in Deuteronomy 25.3 that the law is uh, limited, limits, expressedly limits the stripes someone can receive to 40. Never more. And so uh, in order to be sure that they didn't miscount, they say that it is uh, 40 and they would take one away so that they were showing mercy. It's interesting that uh, Jewish commentators on that rule say that the save that the 40 stripes was to show humanity. It was to show humanity towards those who were being scourged with uh, the stripes. I mean, in our day and age, you look at someone cross-eyed and you know, you've committed a heinous crime against humanity. Well, back in the Old Testament, man, they said, we're, we're going to give you 40 stripes, no more, to show that we're humane. It's really interesting, you know, and they seem to be a lot more healthy back then with that kind of thing going on, in my estimation. Anyway, uh, to be in absolute harmony with the law, they limited it to 39, but I think there's a better reason for that, and I don't know about the less one, to be sure, because if you miscount, you miscount. I mean, if you're going to be off by one, you could be off by four. So why would that be the thing they did? I think they could count to 40 if they needed to. So I'm not so sure about that legend that we say that they would withhold one to explain a verse like this in order to make sure they didn't break the law. Better uh, understood, they had a whip or a scourge that had three straps on it, typically, I guess the whip maker usually used that design and they would 13 times hit you with that thing and that equals 49. So you can't do, I mean, you can't, I guess they could have done four leather things and hit you 10 times and been right on the money with the law, but perhaps they found four 
strands were not as effective as three. All we know is that typically the scourge had three. They would hit you 13 times, that equals 39, and then it, they were done with it. So uh, at the, at, after that, and that, by the way, that doesn't come from my mind. That's Josephus in Antiquities, uh, book four, chapter eight and 21. He's the one who says three, 13 times is the reason for 39. Okay, so Paul goes on at verse 25. Thrice, three times I was beaten with rods. So it's not just the leather strap, it is also a rod. Uh, once I was stoned, thrice I was suffered shipwreck, a night and day I had been in the deep. So Acts mentions him being beaten in this manner with the rod, and there's no need to doubt that I don't think it didn't happen more often than he's saying. And that was a frequent uh, mode of punishment. And Paul, uh, being persecuted, was subject to that. Once I was stoned, which was the punishment among the Jews for blasphemy. Uh, we know that, and we learn about this stoning in Acts fourteen nineteen. That's the one stoning mentioned in Acts, and it's the one stoning he mentions himself here, so it appears like he was stoned only once. However, that stoning did lead to people thinking he was dead. Uh, thrice I sh- suffered shipwreck, and this instance of shipwreck is uh, Acts 27, 1 through 44, which occurred when he was on his way to Rome, and which happened after this epistle was written. So, because of that, there must have been more shipwrecks than the one. And uh, Paul made many voyages, going from Jerusalem to Tarsus to Antioch, various parts of Asia Minor and to Cyprus. So, shipwrecks must have happened often, and he was subject to them. He adds, a night and day I spent in the deep. And the word here used means a 24-hour cycle. Night and a day, I know that's obvious, but, you know, it was the full day, full 24 hours. In the deep, presumably, tied to a shipwreck means the depths of the ocean. I was out in the water. At this point, at verse 26, he provides the reader with eight perils. He really goes off on the peril thing, and he says, In journeyings often, lots of traveling, we understand that, and that takes its toll for sure. In perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils by the, in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren. I'll tell you right now, I'll take every one of those perils except the last one. I'll take a peril in water and with robbers and my own countrymen and, and all that stuff in the sea and in the wilderness. There's some adventure to that. But the perils of false brethren, that's a tough one to handle. So in addition to be exhausted by travel and toil in the travels that he did, he faced kendunas, uh, which is dangers. So you can, we say perils here. King James says perils, but dangers in waters, dangers of robbers. So dangers of losing life by water, sea, flood, rivers, everything that comes traveling like that, of robbers, Many countries, especially Arabia, historically, were infested with robbers for travelers. And so when, they, when he would be going to these places, of course, he was in peril of that. Of my own countrymen, we know that these guys have already fingered him for scourging and for beatings with rods. They laid in wait for him. They probably scourged him in the synagogues. Those were his own brethren. And they really had deep uh, uh, enmity for him as an apostle. He left their ranks. He joined the other side. That doesn't make uh, that, the side very happy with you. 
In addition to his own countrymen, he says, by the heathen, those who didn't know the true and living God, revealed to them. Several instances of this danger from uh, this quarter of the world are mentioned in Acts. He was in danger of it in terms like in places like Derby and Lystra, where the heathens were out to get him. Ephesus in the wilderness, probably to wild beasts, probably to exposure to what goes on in wilderness. And instances of this are not recorded in Acts, but Paul maintains them as a reality and that he was in constant peril being out in the wilderness. I mean, we go on our own wilderness. We learn in this modern day, people can go on a day hike and get lost and die in our wilderness. So we get that. In the sea, already covered that. Among false brethren, the final one. And there's no greater danger in my estimation. If you're surrounded by true believers who are trying to always, you know, they may not agree with you or they may have issues with things, but if they're believers, we're trying to forgive each other. We're trying to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. They're false brethren. They're not real brother and sister. They don't share salvation by grace through Christ by faith. They don't share that. They're false brethren. So they're coming at it at a different angle. And, uh, you know, in our brethren and Christian family, we find friends and confidants who have hearts like ours. And you know that koinonia that goes on between people because you share that commonality. I am closer. I actually trust my brothers and sisters in Christ who are truly brothers and sisters in Christ more than I do my own siblings who don't know Christ yet because they, there's just, you know, we have agreed to a certain credo that we will exercise patience, love, long-suffering, fruit of the Spirit with each other and that we have an expectation with each other that, you know, when I talk to my Christian brothers, it's just assumed that, you know, we're not uh, going out and banging chicks, Right. And if one of the brothers says, well, I went out and banged a chick, then you deal with them as a brother and talk about the faith and things like that. So there's an assumed morality among brothers and sisters. When they're false brethren, there is none of that. And so I think that that false brother and sister, while pretending to love you and stand with you, who will sell you out like Judas Iscariot, that is tough. And I think those deceptions and, and attacks were most difficult for Paul because they were false brethren who had crept in both in Galatia uh, and here at Corinth, they had got in with the believers, but they made life so difficult. In John two twenty three, we read from the life and ministry of Jesus. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, it was feast day. Many believed in his name. They saw the miracles which he did. But it says this interesting line, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. And needed not that any should testify of him, for he knew what was in man. And so we learn over the years this lesson that Jesus knew from from his ministry from the start. What is in men, what is in humanity, can be um, things you don't want to necessarily put all your faith and trust in. You want to put your faith and trust in God, right? And false brethren... They don't even come to the table with an agreed-upon morality and agreed-upon uh, uh, ethic for living the Christian life. They're false. And so it was, it's really the case that you don't want to put your faith and trust in false brethren. And Paul perhaps had, and he found himself, he, in some of his other epistles, he describes how he was hurt by uh, an examiner, I think his name was, and a few others, and how they had done these things to him. So no matter who we're talking about, when the rubber meets the road, most of us will fail in fidelity toward each other in some sense. You know, you, you we're human. 
We will have thoughts and we'll do things. But false brethren are really difficult. I mean, even Peter, when you think about it, he denied knowing the Lord three times and he watched Moses and Elijah come and visit Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. He watched Jesus walk on water. He watched him raise the dead. He watched him do many things and he denied him. So what's in us is not necessarily so good, but it's not that perfection that we're talking about. It's brothers to brothers, sisters to sisters, sisters to brothers. There is a unity among those who are truly of the faith. And even if you differ doctrinally, you share in that, that unity with each other in, a, in a, a relationship of trust. And it seems like Paul did not always experience that. <clears throat> okay. So uh, he adds, in weariness, in painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. So the word translated weariness is kapos, and it means to be cut and to be, or to be beat. And therefore, when he says in weariness and painfulness, he's talking about actual wounds that he received in it. Maybe it was from the stonings and scourgings, but they were cuts and bruises that were painful. Is, is how It's maybe a little bit more of an articulation of some of the previous stuff he's said. And uh, what produced the pain? All those things he's gone through, and he adds, in watchings often. So uh, that's painful, because it seems to imply watching always and being on high alert for enemies. And to be up at night watching to see if the wild beasts were going to get him, if his false brethren were speaking against him, things like that. Watching for approaching danger and attack. He says, in hunger and in thirst. Of course, you know that back then, traveling among inhospitable strangers and lands depends on your own support. Uh, in a country that's uh, uh, inhospitable, you've got to provide for yourself. And if you can't, you're going to go hungry and, and thirsty. And then he says, and fastings often, which is interesting because he said in hunger and thirst, and now he says in fastings often. So I don't know if that means involuntary fastings, like long, prolonged, protracted points of hunger, or if he's saying that he uh, voluntarily fasted as a means to uh, fit in with the culture because they were fasting because it was a fast day or something. I don't know. But it's just something that he suffered. Whether it was uh, voluntary or involuntary is up to opinion. In coldness and nakedness, like involuntary fastings and sleeplessness, would come with the territory of what he's done and what he's doing. Then the icing on the cake says, And beside those things, verse 28, that are without, meaning that are externally being applied to me, Beside those things that have hit me on the outside, that which comes upon me daily, the care of all the churches. So, in addition to all this that I have just explained to you, all these physical ailments and anxieties, I've also had the emotional and psychological issue of uh, these things which come upon me daily in taking care of the churches. 
And when Paul adds, and that which comes upon me daily, there's really a lot of force in the original language. the, The phrase rendered, that which comes upon me daily, is that which rushes in upon me daily. So uh, the Greek tells us that. It wasn't like these passive uh, problems are popping up and he's having to address them. The Greek says the things that are rushing in upon my life daily while I'm hungry, watching, thirsty, being beaten, being stoned, being stripped, being striped, buried in the sea, all of these things, they're also these cares are coming upon me and pressing in on me like a, a mob is really how the Greeks would use that phrase. And this happens to be one of Paul's, Paul's most energetic expressions. It describes an incessant anxiety of mind that he was subject to in what he was doing. Now, Paul's a man. In fact, Paul is, uh, and being a man, he's also sinful. So we're holding him up to some really uh, impressive things here. We don't even read these specifics about Jesus, you know, so uh, he is, he's laying it all out there, and I'm not saying he's laying it on thick. I'm sure it was this difficult with him being a Jew of Jews that's now preaching Jesus as the Messiah, and for the uh, Gentiles to come in without circumcision and be accepted. I'm sure he faced all of these things, um, but he, in addition to all of it, he had to supervise and oversee, hear the news of these different churches and what was going on. The next verse, Paul appeals to his heart and love for the believers in these churches. And he says, who is weak and I am not weak? Who is offended and I burn not? He seems to be saying, I feel where others feel. And their sorrows bring out a lot of sympathy from me. Who's weak and I'm not weak? He shows humility here. And in the face of his recent boastings, he now adds this line. Who's, who out there is weak? And I'm not weak. It seems like a a self-effacing comment he's making here. And and it's appreciated. So if if someone else is weak, I'm weak too. And he takes it further. He says, who is offended? The The word is scandalizo. And of course, we get the word scandal there. Who has been scandalized? And and I do not burn over that. Who has... uh, the word scandalized, who has been scandalized in the Greek doesn't mean what, well, I guess it sort of does mean what. If we find a politician has been scandalized, they usually have stumbled. They have left their ivory tower and stumbled into adultery or something like that, right? Well, it means to stumble or fall from the best Greek in, interpretation. So what Paul is saying is, what believer Christian out there has stumbled into sin or fallen and my heart doesn't burn for them and it's uh, the idea seems to be whoever is liable to be led astray who has temptations who has trials who falls into sin my response is that my heart burns for them his response is not I'm angry at them his response is not I have indication uh, indication indignation against them for failing. Um, Looking to Christ, we see someone who did everything he could to redeem people who had stumbled and fallen and loved those. He he would sit with them and, and engage with them, the sinful woman and the sinful sinner and eat with them and all those things. So the question, the application for us as readers of the Bible is perhaps today the takeaway, I hope, is do we bear the same thing? 
for the scandalized that we come across in our daily lives because they are just really falling to things in their flesh that are exist in our flesh too. They have tripped up or done something or are living in a certain way. That's just part of who they are and how do we respond to them? Paul says that I burn, meaning I have a heart for what they are enduring. So it doesn't seem to be this finger of accusation. It seems to be more like, I, I want to help you. How can I be of counsel to you to help you rise up from what you have you know, become? Um, but Paul does not suggest this attitude of uh, righteous indignation. He did with the, with the man who was caught with his father's wife in 1 Corinthians, but that was only initially to try to keep the church together and because they were just saying, you're fine, you're fine, and, and Jesus was coming back to take his church. But even quickly, Paul came back and said, let him back in. Let him back in. Be merciful to this sinner. Oh, wow, this is embarrassing. A campus creature has... You know, there's more creatures in this cup than there are people in this room. That's telling you something. All right. But the people in this room are not creatures. They are creations of the living God. So Jesus came to resave, to redeem, to, to love and liberate the captives. When you see someone captive to the sin to the life, to the whatever. That outreach of love to them, long-suffering. Boy, boy, it takes a while for people to come around, right? Long-suffering to help them. Many decades ago, I was, uh, I hate to give you an anecdotal, but I have to because it was really, really impressed upon my mind. I was teaching early morning seminary in the Mormon church. We met, meet like 5.45 in the morning before these kids would go to high school. And it was a Friday, and all the kids were really excited. It was a 9 through uh, 12 class, and the, the uh, Sadie Hawkins dance was that night, or, the, or Saturday night, and they're all going, and, you know, so they weren't even, they weren't caring about Moroni and Mahanrai Mori Ankimer. And anyway, so I'm teaching the class, and so the room's a buzz, and the following Monday we come in, and there's, this, there's just this attitude going on in the class, and uh, come to find out, after the class, a couple of the kids told me that one of the girls from one of the high schools, our seminary class uh, was fed by two different high schools, and one of the girls from one of the high schools uh, got drunk, and she slept with her boyfriend to the Sadie Hawkins dance. And, it, and the other kids in that class, man, it was fugly. It was not nice. It was really, and even then, I wasn't a born-again Christian yet, but it was reprehensible the way that they were acting and talking. And it gave us an opportunity to talk about, you know, what would cause uh, that to happen and how are you supposed to respond to that. And I mean, I couldn't convince most of them. They were taking on the uh, attitude of their religious leaders and their parents of, you've got to slam the door on that, you know, filthy whore. Uh, but... Uh, it's, it was an opportunity for the, someone to reach out to her. And uh, she, very, she came back maybe two times um, after that. You know, the year ended in June of the following year, and that was like in November. And she was coming all the time. So, you know, that's exactly what happens is we fall, we stumble, 
and we don't show up anymore. So it takes the people who are involved, the brothers, the sisters, to reach out, bring them in, and, and, and love them as they are, and let the Spirit work on them. So, I mean, that girl wore a scarlet letter, and um, we don't know how Paul burned here when others stumbled or failed. He doesn't tell us, but we do know that he felt deeply and could not feel indifferently when one of them would stumble. Then he says at verse 30, sorry, If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. So, what uh, you know what that means. He's saying, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the things that, uh, circumstances that have hurt me and that are difficult. And here he's saying that I'm not going to boast by accomplishments. Why I shared the gospel 27 times in the month of May. Why we had 18 baptisms and 27 saving experiences. He's not saying that. He said, I'm going to boast in the things that have brought weakness and occurred to me through that. Then he adds at 2031, And God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which has blessed forever which is blessed forevermore knows that I lie not. So I wanted to finish this chapter today because I'm jonesing to finish Second Corinthians uh, almost as much as I jones to finish Revelation. But I think we ought to give this passage pause because I just can't skip over it. Why does Paul write this way about God and Jesus? Why does he always do this constantly in every one of his epistles? This is not the only place where he speaks of God as the Father of Jesus. In Romans 15, 6, that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort. Why does Paul constantly do this? Ephesians 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. God, the Father of Jesus Christ, has done this. He says it over and over. First Peter, even Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Distinctions constantly. Not only this, Paul in a number of places plainly describes God the Father as the only God. The only God. The Father as the only God. 1 Corinthians 15, 24, where he says, Then comes the end when he, Jesus, shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, For to us there is but one God, the Father. He says it. I'm reading scripture to you. There is but one God, 
the Father, to whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Papa, Father. Ephesians 1, 17, That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Ephesians 4, 6, One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Ephesians 6.23 Peace be to you, brethren, and the love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Philippians 4.20 Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. 1 Thessalonians 3.11 Now God himself and our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ direct our ways to you. And then 1 Thessalonians 3.13, To the end he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. I mean, there's a workaround to this. I know it. That's explained on verses like these uh, that I just ended with in, in, in chapter uh, uh, 11 of 2 Corinthians. So I consulted my friend, Matt Slick. He is a a local scholar. He's in Idaho, actually. He's a brother in the faith. And his explanation on this is, is the following, which is the standard explanation. Quote, this is a quote. In order to understand by what is meant by the phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have to first understand a few basic principles. First of all, God is a trinity. It's the first thing he says. That's the, I mean, that's just the first thing that comes out there. God may be a trinity. I don't know, but these passages really trouble me. Okay? This means that, he goes on, this means that the single being who is God is expressed in three distinct simultaneous persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Word who became flesh and dwelled among us. Therefore, Jesus has two distinct natures. This is getting to their point. He is both God and man. As a man, it was necessary that he be born of a woman and therefore born under the law. Since he was born under the law as a man, he was obligated to love God and worship him. It says in Deuteronomy 6.5 that we are to love the Lord our God and we are told you shall fear only the Lord your God and you shall worship him and swear by his name. So Jesus had to obey the law and he had to worship God the Father. Therefore we see that Jesus was a man who had to fulfill the law which included worshiping God. But because he is also the son, then he is the son by relation to the Father Now we can understand why the text would say the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when we see the phrase, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we can now understand that it's speaking of the Trinity. And how Jesus, the Word in flesh, who was required to keep the law, would have someone he would call God according to Deuteronomy and who would be considered the God and Father of Jesus. So admittedly, if you're going to embrace that, that doctrine of the Trinity, just wholesale, without like investigating and questioning, 
This is the only way to explain the verse. And I get it. I used to explain the Trinity this way to people. Jesus was both man and God. And Jesus, when he was man, he would refer to, to God as his father. But my question is, why Paul? Why Paul would have failed to explain the relationship better? Uh, and why would God allow these passages to so clearly and directly say that he is the only God, the Father, and that Jesus is the Lord and Savior and King. Why those passages? I get Jesus, why he would pray to the Father as God with us as a man. That's fine. But why does Paul consistently remind us and never, ever include the Holy Spirit in his uh, postulations of worship to to the Trinity? Never include that person. Why? So last week I was in Southern California and I had a rare chance to actually sit in a jacuzzi uninterrupted. Uh, it was my in-laws jacuzzi, Cassidy's husband's uh, parents. They let me sit in their jacuzzi outside. I think that's when I got sick. Just kidding. And I was alone. And when I'm alone, I talk to God. This is just my heart on a plate. God is my witness. I talk. What's up, man? I mean, tell me, not man. Tell me, Lord God, what's going on? And I asked for insight and wisdom through scripture to understand these things and was suddenly given a clarity of thought. I'm not a prophet. This isn't a revelation for all. This is just me and God in the jacuzzi. In terms of the Trinity, I mean, I beg for insight. I say, please help me to understand what this is all saying. It's not the first time. And uh, I want to understand his nature. And I heard a clarifying answer. But it seemed to, and it seemed to say, the spirit is my spirit and the son is my son. That's what I got. I don't know what that means. I think it's in harmony with scripture. The spirit is my spirit and the son is my son. That's what I got. It may have been just for me, for my understanding. Maybe it helps you. It's not scripture. It's not a revelation. But... That is what I got to help me understand what I was working on down there while I was visiting. How to understand why Paul is saying, and God tells me, the spirit is my spirit and the son is my son. That's all I got. We're going to stop there and finish out chapter 11 or 12 next week. Comments and questions, if you would like. Thank you. Please state your name. Hi, Sean. I'm Patrick. Of course, you know that for everyone else. Um, the way I look at Jesus as Emmanuel, remember God with us, mm-hmm. um, I'm probably wrong. Again, like I said this morning, like your sign says, but I look at it, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I look at there's the Father... There's the son. But how I view God is that while Jesus was on earth, God's word, not named Jesus before, only at birth, but his word with him in Old Testament, I see that as God who created all things, time, space, matter, can step out, become the son. This could be modalism, call me a heresy, everyone on the internet, whatever, heretic, whatever. But 
while still being the Father at the same time in heaven, that the human side of Jesus can pray to, to show how to have a relationship with that Father. Mm-hmm. Paul can say, God and Father of all Jesus Christ, because I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or believe me for the very work's sake, mm-hmm. that type of analogy. So I see uh, Romans one eighteen, not Romans, John one eighteen. no matter sing God at any time, the unique and one of a kind God, the only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he declares him. So he's in the bosom of light and fire, and he's in the midst. God's in him. He is in God. He is fully God, but he became a man for us. Love it. I pray to him. I pray to Jesus. Jesus, I love you. I just said it right I mean, I pray to him. So, and I still think of the Father. I don't dismiss the Father to Jesus, but Jesus is God, fullness of God. I don't dispute him. that one at all. Yeah. No. There's only one God. Yeah. It's, a, it's tough. It's tough. And we bring it up here on occasion, but anybody else? Okay, let's pray and get out of Dodge. Lord, uh, the mysteries you reveal by your Spirit, and we, so we pray that you'll continue to open up your ways and words to us and to know you uh, and your Son is life eternal, as Jesus said. And so we seek to know you and to know your, your makeup and to know your person. So be patient with us, Lord, as we talk about these things that we don't fully understand. We pray for the people who uh, are struggling in and around us now and that I have uh, privy to. And I, I pray for the Rapids uh, family and the great difficulty they're having in their family with their children and, uh, and these um, just this real difficulty, especially with Hannah, their teenager, and just psychological problems and, and issues that have beguiled her when just in December... She had not been affected by any of it. And so it's a hereditary thing, and they're dealing with it, with doctors and medicine. And and we just pray for Jason and Rachel and those children, especially Hannah at this point in time. We pray for Lisa, who uh, is going into hospice tomorrow and uh, facing the last uh, weeks, month of her life. We pray that she will be void of pain uh, and be able to uh, transfer from this life to the next and from that cancer that has uh, crippled her body. Uh, we pray for Jake Miller and the things going on with him. We pray for uh, people who are struggling with the faith, people who have been maligned somehow by religion and are bitter, people who might not fully understand uh, what you're all about. And we pray especially for the people who have uh, once been engaged mightily with you and maybe have let go a bit and we just pray for them lord that they will come back like uh, all prodigals do like we all have and return to you and know that you will run toward us and you'll embrace them and let them know that you are there to embrace them and receive them and put a ring on their finger and kill the fatted calf and so we just pray for those who are part of the household of faith who are yours but this world has just gotten under their skin a little bit and we just pray that you'll Help them to walk by the the spirit, not the skin. Help all the rest who are struggling with the difficulties of this life. Make yourself known so we can continue to praise you, worship you, seek you, and trust you in all things. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.